Well, I've been gone to, uh, for two weeks, uh, one week to our general assembly with our denomination, and then the other week on vacation. And uh, well, welcome back, Shane. I don't know what I was thinking to come back off vacation and start off with lust and divorce. Uh, uh, as the sermon <laughs> to have to do, I should have been wiser in that. Actually, I tried to get Kevin to do it, but he said, no, I've got the kid, I have to do the parent thing, and he, he backed out. So <laughs> he didn't. Um, you know, this passage, uh, when you read it, as we continue in the Beatitudes here, Jesus is now telling us what, what practically the kingdom of God looks like in different areas of our life. And he's been in the, in the Beatitudes, he's sort of told us how we come into the kingdom of God. And then as we come into the kingdom, this is, what, this is how people relate to others relationally within the kingdom of God. And so now he's addressing some practical things. Uh, and Tyler last week did a wonderful job. I got to listen to that on um, anger. And so here he comes to this topics of lust and divorce. And most people, you know, read this passage and conclude, I think, uh, sex and sexual desires are bad. I think that's probably what you read that. You feel like this thing's really restraining and that's what God's ethic is. And um, so let me just clarify first that Jesus is uh, talking about marriage and sex, you'll see the notice that the language is around adultery and divorce. And so it's, it's marriage and sex, and it's not just sex, and it's not just marriage. And that's important because in God's economy, those things are one and the same. One doesn't function outside of the other. It's only the place. And actually, the Old Testament thought, the Old Testament teaching, and the biblical thinking is that sex is to only be done inside of a covenant. And that covenant is the marriage covenant. And so this is around sex and marriage as the topic. And, um, and you'll see both of these uh, passages, these short uh, topics here of lust and how he addresses them shortly in divorce are around that. Now, you can't separate them. But, but I just want to say, as heavy as it feels and restrictive as it feels, that the Bible does have a glorious, a very glorious um, story and, and, and around sex and, and, and a beautiful one. As a matter of fact, I would say if you get a an accurate understanding of the biblical view of sex, it makes Christianity glorious and beautiful because of how it teaches about And as a matter of fact, the Bible, if you really read it closely, can make you uncomfortable. I've actually had to preach through some of the passages here around the erotic and the beauty of sexual attraction and what sex is within the context of the covenant, how beautiful it is. It's sort of like the way the Bible, like a, like a hearth with a fire. Like when it has the right parameters, it's intended to burn. But a fire outside the hearth can be destructive and, and out of control. And that's, that's sort of how the Bible sort of describes it. But I always laugh uh, over the years about the idea that, uh, then the idea that, that it is a glorious topic, that our, the whole Bible starts with this idea. And uh, Tim Keller often, over the years, uh, one of the guys who recently died at one of our pillars of our denomination, usually started off most of his talks reminding everybody that the Bible begins with a man singing a love song to a woman. It wasn't good for him to be alone. And they're both naked, and God's right there with them. That's the start of the story of the Bible. You can laugh about that. Relax. <laughs> The Bible, it, it begins with a marriage and sex, and that's what happens, and God was in the presence of it. That was the first thing. It's his design, and it's glorious, and the Bible works, uh, works through that. And so it's his invention, and it's glorious. Um, 
And I want to remind us that the Beatitudes, if we looked at them when we kicked them off, is that this teaching that Jesus, although it seems heavy, is actually Jesus, oh, how he loves you. And he wants you to flourish. He wants you to flourish. And so none of these things are trying to hold you back. They're actually trying, he's trying to teach you how to flourish in the Beatitudes on every topic he comes to. Money, anger, and these things, he knows what it's like to flourish, what it means to function in his kingdom, and he wants us to do that. So uh, what we can conclude from this is that the first century Jews who are here and sitting on the mountain with him and followers of him and those who have come out and the Greeks that we know are present here as well, what we must understand is that they're probably not flourishing because he's giving them some law, some, some, some correction in how they're not thinking about things correctly when it comes to the sex ethic and marriage in the Bible. And they've had the law and the Jews who are Greek alike are not doing well. So let me just ask you this question. Do you think that we culturally in the church need to hear from God on sexual ethics and sexual in marriage, do you think we need to hear from him? Of course we do. And it's really um, important. I don't have to take long to make that point. It is ever, ever more prevalent. And we've probably gone from a, a phase in our history as a country where we were in the wrong ditch, where we didn't talk about s- sex, and it was asceticism and, and, and a rigidness around it, and now... There's no restraint. But it's sort of always been the fall. And so um, R.C. Sproul, before he died, uh, late in his life, began to speak that he thought that the most important revolution that occurred and impacted America was not the American Revolution, which gave us our independence, nor was it the Industrial Revolution, which made us prosper in the world. But it was the sexual revolution. And that its impact on us as a culture has had the greatest impact of any revolution we've had. Let me read to you what he said in one quote. The most far-reaching epic revolution in American history began about 50 years ago and is now reaching its zenith. No war has been fought in terms of military conflict, but this revolution has killed millions of unborn people. Approximately 3,000 lives, in fact, will be lost to this revolution before midnight tonight. And this number does not include the revolution's other casualties. Bodies will be mutilated in the name of changing one's gender. Sexually transmitted disease will sterilize, leave lasting physical and emotional scars, and even pronounce death sentences on men and women. Young young women will be pregnant and be abandoned, leaving them to raise children in fatherless homes. Pornography will warp people's views of sex and relationships. That was his commentary just on the sexual revolution and its impact. So... Just as the first century Jews and the audience of Jesus in that day weren't flourishing and they needed Jesus to speak to them, I think it's safe to say so do we. And, um, and so, and I want you to, uh, no matter where you are, whether you are married or single or um, that, that, that it, all of it matters. If you're, if you're single, you're not inside of marriage, so you're having to figure out sexual purity outside of the marriage. And so everybody's affected by the idea of sex and marriage. And so may we hear from the Lord. May we believe that he is good and wants us to flourish. And um, here's what we can conclude. We all have a sex and marriage problem. And I think... All of us would, would believe that 
these two topics of lust and divorce at some level have touched all of us. And as we go into this, may you remember that it is a good, good father. It is not beyond the redemption or his forgiveness or his love that we even have, and all those things that have happened in each of our lives and touched each of these lives that are in here. It has touched every life. The passage says everyone, by the way. It's touched us all in some way, form. And so we need to hear from him. We need to hear from him so that we might flourish. James Montgomery Boyce says that the sexual instinct has gone wrong. The instinct was not wrong. So to have a desire like this is not wrong. God made it. But the desire has gone wrong. We must, put all, we must all admit that sinners, even at conversion, we are not automatically free from victorious over or even innocent of the world's perversion of sex because of it. So may we, um, may we hear from our Lord. And so I, as Jesus wants to help us, what I want to highlight, just three things. And um, uh, here's my alliteration again. Kevin's always fascinated by my thesaurus skills. We'll look at the seriousness. I really think that, that to understand this passage, you need to understand the seriousness of it that Jesus is trying to bring. Okay, So we all need to remember that. Secondly, that there's a struggle. There's a couple of struggles in these two areas that he addresses. All right? And then in lust and in divorce. And then the struggles that he addresses in the satisfaction that's really there in the passage that's implied, but the satisfaction that can be found. Okay, let me pray. Father, um, I'm so mindful, God, of the first beatitude that blessed are the poor in spirit. We confess that every single one of us at some level and in some way are poor in spirit when it comes to this particular topic. That we're impoverished and without hope apart from your mercy. And... Father, that the only way that we have come into the kingdom, your kingdom, if we are in the kingdom and followers yours, the only way we've gotten here is by your grace. And that, Father, our, our, um, we're not great at keeping our vows to you in this marriage, to you as our groom and we as the church, your bride. So, Jesus, would you help us? Would you bring the weightiness of this topic and don't let it fall to the side and don't let it be minimized? Would you bring clarity and expand it to the, would you bring the clarity to the struggles that were particularly there in this culture? And may, they, may we be able to extrapolate them to help us today. And then thirdly, Father, would you, would you truly bring us, uh, may you segue us to this table today that really uh, is a covenant renewal of our vows and remembering your faithfulness to us as your church. So segue us to that and, and be with us. And um, in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So first, as we look at our passage, we'll just be looking at it, and it should be there on the screen, is we'll look at the seriousness. And I, I think what's appropriate, which when you read this passage, is that you do need to feel the weight of what Jesus is trying to say. And so when I was joking that everybody thinks that Jesus or God is against sex, that's kind of your conclusion. I have to overcome that in my own heart, and I teach on the topic of sex and marriage a lot, and even help those in it. 
But, but, but you don't need to miss the fact that there is a lot of seriousness to this. There's weightiness, and I think Jesus is showing that with his language and with he, in, in how, what he's addressing it and how he brings it to the forefront. Do you sense the, the heaviness just by the sheer language of the passage itself, right? I mean, the idea of hell and cutting, gouging out your eye and gou- cutting off your right hand um, and uh, the seriousness of this that he brings to it. The, the language of loan makes it seem serious and heavy, and it should. It's very, very serious and heavy. It's important to God, and that's why it seem, he seems to use. Now, we, clearly, it's metaphorical language, right? It is that. Even the idea of cutting that off. Now, you can't find anybody in the Bible who ever gouged their eye out, recorded. None of the disciples did it. Uh, nobody ever cut their arm off. So it's metaphorical. But Jesus is using hyperbole and a metaphor in order for you to feel the weight of it. That's why we use it. And so there's a heaviness to it, and you and I should feel it, and that's part of it. The other way we see the seriousness is in, uh, in other, a couple of other ways is that right when the passage begins in verse 27, notice it says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now that pattern there, you have heard that it is said, and that's, he said that about anger, and he's going to say that's going to be a common phrase that Jesus uses when he brings up different topics that he wants to help us with and help us how to flourish. And when he does that, what he's doing there is he is setting this discourse, this point, right in the middle of the Decalogue. It's the, Ten Commandments, it's the seventh commandment that he's quoting. You've heard that, and he's putting it and building upon it. He's, remember, he's not going to set aside the law. He's not doing that. He's saying, you've heard this said, and he's not saying this is different. He's actually building on it, and he's putting it. Now, a first century Jew, and any Jew at that point throughout this time, the Decalogue was a reminder of the Exodus where Moses did it. And it was the picture of the gospel to them. It was the most important thing. They had, a, they had the sacrament of that day, the, uh, the Passover lamb, which we now take, was to remind them of the Exodus. So they had a, they had a sacrament in a sense to do that and to remind them of it. So they feel the weight of this when he begins with that language. He's putting it in the language of seriousness for them. This is a big deal. You've heard it said. Where did we hear it heard? We heard it said to us in the Decalogue, in the Exodus, from Moses, from the mountain, from the patriarchs, the authority and God. Uniquely, and then when they hear that as a Jew, they hear that as, oh my goodness, this is what's made us special. God has set us apart from any other people in all the world. And from this Mount Sinai, he has come down and revealed his character to us and given us the Torah, given us the law, and given us these things, and that sets us apart. So he's putting this in the weightiness of where they are. Now he's he, um, and so they would have heard it in that way. This is serious to them. It's weighty as he's putting them in that, uh, as he's reminding them, as he sets this in motion, what he's going to talk to them about. So why is it so serious? What, if he's making it feel serious, why is it serious to God? That's a fair question, right? Why the weightiness? What makes it, why is it weighty? Or what, what is weighty about it? Why is God making sure uh, that we feel the weight of it? And um, a few thoughts here. And this is where it's important that we understand how the passage fits in the totality of the Scriptures, that we do need to exegete the, the passage where it is and the verses itself and, uh, and what we bring from that. But we never need to forget where it sits in the whole council of the Scriptures and the redemptive story of you and I. And um, here's why it's really serious. Marriage and sex have been central to God's story for all of creation. The first, the first uh, relationship he made was not buddies, best friends. He didn't get out of a best friend. It wasn't a child. It wasn't um, a team. The first relationship made 
that God made was a marriage. It's the priority relationship on earth. And that was the one he made. And then the family comes from that, but the marriage. So we see, which I, we, we joked a minute ago, that that's where this story begins. But that, the marriage story is central. And when he gives the commands to be fruitful and multiply, you can't be fruitful and multiply and bear more images of God in this earth, which is what man was called to do, without, without marriage. And there's a way he wants it done, and it's important to him. It's central to the story. Marriage is the beginning. The Bible always lets us see how messed up the marriages are of the patriarchs. The, po the polygamy, which, by the way, they never prosper when all these bad things are happening. It lets us see those things. I can trace it all the way to how the prophets use the language of marriage and our relationship to God. And we're adulterous and, uh, and, and, and whores as his people when we don't stay married to him and our worship him and connection to him. The first miracle of Jesus, where did he go? To a marriage. And where does Revelation finish? With a wedding banquet. And so it's central. It's central to the story of his creation and how he intends for it to work. Sex and marriage are right in the middle of it. You can't fill the earth without it. That's the weight of it. Then secondly, why is it serious to him? Is that marriage is the institution that is to be a picture of the gospel. When we get to the New Testament unpacking of it, marriage alone is to be a picture of Christ's love for the church, how the husband loves the wife and that. So if he's going to take an institution that he created and going to say that institution preaches and tells a story about the gospel, my relationship to my people, my church, it's a very, very high deal. The pain and, the, and the, all of us have, ex, have experienced and the hurt and the mistakes and why it hurts so bad is because around marriage and family and sex is because it is directly a picture of the gospel and it has high, high stakes attached to it. It actually says that it's a profound mystery how a husband and wife become one. The same type of union is used that the Holy Spirit, Jesus and himself, the triune God, God, Father, Father, Son, excuse me, Holy Spirit, relate to one another. There's a union that happens, a profound mystery in the marriage that, is, that happens that parallels that. It actually takes sexual intimacy and says that's what it's like to know God. It uses those interchangeably in the Bible. John 17, 3, and this is genosko, this is eternal life, that you may know God, the same word that they use for sex. So I hope that as we see this, if God puts all of this parallels to it, then it is serious to him. So it makes sense that he's going to speak to this topic because it is they aren't flourishing and it's having causing lots of damage and they miss it and they mess it up but it's serious in that way. The other way that we know why it's serious to God is I want you to to know this why it's weighty and why why we should feel the weight of it is because image bearers in these two situations of lust and divorce in these unique situations image bearers people were being exploited. Now you remember last week that anger that that Tyler was talking about that the anger is to murder an image bearer. Why murder is so bad is because it kills an image bearer, and to attack an image bearer is to is attack God in that sense. And in, this, in these two situations here with lust, lust objectifies a human being and exploits them and says, you exist for my pleasure. It's, it's selfish. And that is the world system, is that intimacy is about 
personal satisfaction and not a covenantal love and sacrifice towards you. And so there's exploitation of people and, and women. And um, particularly here, I, um, I want to highlight for you the Roman view, how they were exploiting, and the Jews, because they both were doing it, okay? They both were exploiting people in marriage and sexual. They're both present here. Now, the Roman, here's what Roman sexuality was about. It was about dominance. That would be the key word. All commentaries tell you that. All history tell you that, that the sexual ethic and marriage within marriage and about marriage within the Greco-Roman world was about dominance in Rome. And it was male or female dominance. It didn't matter who the male was going to, it was about male dominance. And whoever, they, it didn't matter if they dominated male or females. And so here's a, two or three ways it plays out. The male could have sex with slaves, whether they were male or female. He could just take them. It was common that they would visit prostitutes and he would have homosexual encounters even while married. Here's what they understood, that a respectable man would express his dominance by having sex, consensual or forced, with men, women, and even children. Okay? So the way you defined yourself and was expected to be a man was to dominate, to just take things. In marriage and sexually anywhere you went, they could do it. Also, pedophilia. Um, it was rampant. As a matter of fact, it was appropriate for a man to take a teenage or a prepubescent boy and to have a, a, an intimate relation with them sexually and to groom them and to raise them. And actually, that relationship was viewed higher than the marriage relationship to the woman of greater importance. And the Jews, have you ever read Genesis? Have you honestly read Genesis? When you read Genesis, it makes you feel dirty. I mean, it speaks how God, patient God is with his people. I mean, Jacob, the 12 tribes, those come from four women, by the way. Polygamy, Abraham pimping out his wife to a king. Women were primarily viewed as property. And, um, and the exchange with that, and that's what's going on here in the, um, in the divorce, and I'll get in that in a minute. So, Jesus does not want his image bearers to experience these things. That type of exploitation that was going on among them was terrible. Now, under the divorce thing, what, what the men were doing, the Jewish, the divorce thing is particularly a Jewish struggle. Without getting to all the details of it, basically, Jewish men at this point 
had decided if they, and the, along with the Pharisees, part of the Pharisees sect, had figured out a way with a law within Moses that was supposed to protect the women if they were left, if they could have a certificate of divorce, if a man left them or something, they would be clearly divorced. But what they were doing is they twisted this law and they were using it to their advantage. And if a woman, if, if, if a woman or a wife, they didn't even like the way she cooked, they could just issue her a certificate of divorce and go be with other people. So in Malachi, when God says, I hate divorce, the, the thrust of that hatred, which people quote that so loosely, because, um, because we, we will see there, there is a place for divorce. Even in our passage, it gives that. But primarily what he hates, one of the things he hates was that was the exploitation. He was in that context of Malachi. It was the exploitation of the women. That was it, of the weak and those who couldn't defend themselves. But women had no right to properties and anything. And so they were being exploited in many ways. So the weightiness of this thing, and Jesus is getting to specifics in that, is that you should feel that, that this is a weighty subject. Jesus feels it's weighty to him, and he wants us to feel it as well. And, um, and Jesus wants us to, to see that. It was a weighty, a weighty, weighty issue. It was serious. Aren't you thankful that Jesus is mindful and God is mindful of the cultures and what's going on? And then he's willing to bring the thing and say that he knows that the absence of law is not freedom, that actually real law and direction really is what helps you. That without a hearth and without design, that the fire will just burn everything like it is in Canada now, that Jesus is that thoughtful and he'll tell you those things. It's like me, if I were to buy you golf clubs and say, here's the thing for your birthday, me to give my kids and say, I bought you some golf clubs and here's the, this gift I've given you. But all of a sudden, Hudson takes those golf clubs and he's using them as fishing rods and he's using them as a weapon to beat his brother. And I find them staked outside for uh, tomatoes to grow on them. Do you see? He's taking a gift, and he, it sort of works, but it doesn't work. That's not what it was intended for. And that's what God's people have done, and we do. We take good, good gifts, and we don't know how to use them correctly. And it's far more dangerous than putting a, a golf club uh, to stake some, some tomatoes. The consequences are dire. And so he does that. It's serious. Well, um, he loves you, and he, he wants us to help, and he, he's addressing that. He's more compassionate, you know. It's very, very, very heavy uh, at the time. So the struggle that he addresses, he addresses a couple of them in our passage. And um, as it gets into it, you see the struggle of lust. And Jesus here begins, uh, the main thing when he gets to that, he's like, you, uh, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her heart, verse 28, and if your right eye calls you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand calls you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. So he's expanding the law here, and what he What he's correcting is, is that they had figured out a way to think that lust, and that the only way you could break God's law, was externally. And Jesus is saying, no, the law can be broken. I'm not just after external, external correction and, and appeasement. See, they would fix the law to their advantage and say, well, this certificate of divorce makes me able to do it. And he's saying, no, the heart matters, and I'm coming after your heart. And so expanding the law, this is, this is about... Jesus is saying, I, this thing is way bigger than you ever thought. 
And, and my commandment is stronger and it's more important and it's more far-reaching than you ever should. And I'm bringing that to light to you so that you will feel the weight of that and need me and want me. And I want you to pursue it in a way that would be that. When he uses these metaphors here, the extreme, what he's getting at, if I could just simplify that in this way, out of all of it, the I, cut the D, and I can't get into specifics of what you should do or not do, and what does it mean, am I cutting my eye off or not? But here's the thing. He's saying it's so important that anything that is important to you, some commentators think the right eye, which you would need to see, would be the, the most important, and the right hand, but it would be any the thing of utmost importance to you would be willing to be let go of if that's meant what it means to obey God and to be right with him. You must be willing to let go of anything of great, great importance for you. And the implications are it will be very difficult. It will probably feel like Galgen and I. Things that are important to us, things that are difficult, it will not be easy to do. But the stakes are high. And you can be pulled into hell. Not that you can lose your salvation, but he's using that language there to help them understand that this stuff is from the pit of hell. And those of us that get entangled in it, maybe you've never known me, he will later say, because this stuff is bad. And the goal is that he's after our heart. You break more of it, you know. You see that. So when he says the, the lustful intent, it is, um, it's a word in the Greek that is interesting. It's also used with greed and coveting. And it's not, it's not just the act itself. It's a persuasion or the desire of the heart. That's why this, this thing is, is interchangeable with other struggles. And what Jesus is saying is that I am not interested in just your obedience. I'm interested in your heart. Does he have a heart for us? Or is he just only executing plays to save us? Or does he love us? And that you can break my laws inwardly with your imagination and your desires and your looks just as much as you can, you can break them outwardly. Now, I want to be real clear that that to look at someone lustfully, and uh, here he's talking about men, but most think that's talking about any, in any, can be applied to any sex or any person. It's not just a marriage because it says everyone. But what I want to be real clear is, is it, is it worse? <laughs> is it just as bad to have lust in your heart to lustfully look upon one? To, to, in a sense, it's not saying the look is bad in and of itself. It is the, the marination. It is the desire. He's not saying that you can't look at something, someone, and say they're pretty and attractive. It's not saying that. What it's saying is this, this, this hanging on to it in your heart in a way that it's developed out and you have a great desire for it. It's like fantasizing. It's imagination. He's saying that is like as much as that. He said that is just as bad. That is sin. That can earn hell as much as breaking the actual thing. Now, are they equal? Meaning, so you're like, hey, when you read that and you read that, hey, is it Many often conclude, well, shoot, I thought it and felt it, might as well act on it. No. We do think some sins 
even our Westminster Confession, are some more heinous and have more consequences to them than others. But so, and even our, our legal system shows that. If I shoot someone and murder them, I broke the law. If I jaywalk, I've broken the law. They have different consequences. But they've broken the law. Well, what I think Jesus is doing here is that, that lust and the heart had gotten so far removed from the actual act of adultery that he's bringing it up and saying, no, you need to think a lot more about how much this strikes against the covenant and is sinful in your heart. And then I'm after your heart. And so there is a difference, but at the same, what they earn is hell, and it has great, great consequences to it. And the actions, that our actions are always connected to what our heart is fantasizing, imagination is going after. So, um, I do want to just pause for a second and talk about the, the divorce thing is a little bit, a little bit different. And the divorce thing here is uh, Jesus clearly, what, what he's dealing with was this certificate thing that I told you about. And what he, uh, but he does give a, a, a circumstance where it's okay. And what we believe, what I want to just say around this divorce thing is that we believe that there is a time that's appropriate for a divorce. And we, we, even within our own denomination biblically, one is mentioned here, which is sexual morality. So if someone were to have uh, uh, had a sexual encounter, then the, the marriage covenant would have been broken. Also, in abandonment, there's a way that Paul had a new issue come up in 1 Corinthians where he was like, man, um, we have believers, and the believers were coming to him, and they were saying to him, hey, we've got spouses, they're leaving us, they don't want to believe in God like we do, and they're leaving us and abandoning us. And the Old Testament didn't seem to deal with it. And so you see Paul use this language of like, I think this is what God wants us to do. It was a difficult situation that he applies to it. So the idea of being abandoned and the idea of being uh, sexually, uh, uh, or adultery, actual sexual acts within adultery, pornea, of any type of sex could do that. Now, here's the thing, what I want to, to, to say a couple of thoughts about that. One, is, it is a gracious thing that God, it would be best that we would not have that present. But he's so mindful of how bad the fall is. But he gives provisions for it. And the church is, the, the real question uh, I think that he's, that oftentimes people want to know is, uh, is it black and white? And within these two areas, um, what does it look like to be abandoned? What does it look like to be beaten? What does it look like to be hurt? <laughs> you know, it, there's all kinds of things that can happen. And this is where the wisdom of the church and the local church and its leadership are able to come in and to help believers process if this is the right, what, if, or is what's happening to them in this marriage, are the right applications able to happen here? And... The real, I, I would say it in this way. The, if marriage is a covenant, what Jesus is saying is that sexual immorality can strike the covenant in a way that just kills it and cuts it off. And so can abandonment. But, wow, so does every lustful look mean that my covenant is completely strut off, right? Does that mean what? And no, so what the church's sense is trying to help people understand is has the covenant of marriage been struck in a way 
that it meets the grounds for what happened here. And that's such a difficult thing to deal with. And it's just, um, I, want to, I want to just say that uh, Jesus is aware of that, and he gives, um, he gives conclusion to that and wants to help. He makes her commit adultery. Notice that it says there in verse 32 that, um, that the man, when he was doing these acts, would make the woman, and he's addressing the idea that he would make her um, commit, commit the adultery by sending her out and put her in a terrible situation. So it's, it's simultaneously very complex with all the rest of the passage. But Jesus is expanding it to the heart and to see that he's always after the heart and, the, um, and, and remember that he wants us to move towards people and not exploit them. Move towards them in a way that's merciful and pure. And lastly, just the satisfaction of the heart. And it's, it's seen here, it's interesting that um, if there's a real seriousness and a struggle, the satisfaction here that is found is really kind of the opposite of what you see, that this could lead to hell. So outside of marriage... <laughs> Outside of marriage, or, or when you strike against marriage, it can lead to what? It's like a taste of hell, or it can lead to hell. But when in the marriage covenant, and rightly, it's a taste of heaven. That the opposite could be concluded as well. And it's so interesting that Jesus, when the woman at the well, he dealt with her. Isn't it interesting when he talked about the idea of, of satisfaction was with a woman at the well with thirst and that. And so what some scholars think that the word hell that he uses here, that he talks about, was a particular place just outside of Jerusalem. It wasn't the full understanding of hell, but a place called Gina, outside a valley. And it was a place where they took their rubbish and trash, and it was a place where waste and desires were left. And so where it takes you is a place where none of your desires are met. And yet, isn't it funny that Jesus in John 4, with the woman at the well, he talks to her, and the thing he talks about and equates in sexual immorality and divorce and all that she was in, in, involved in, he questions her about her thirst and her desires. And he goes to her heart. And what he says that he offers to us is a satisfaction that is, um, that is beyond, um, in him, that is beyond the satisfaction we've been looking for. And we look for in marriage, and it's in him. So, just in conclusion, there's one thing I want us to, a couple of thoughts to have and remember is this. First, that... Um, that there's no marriage that will ever satisfy you. Marriage will never satisfy you. And Brittany and I will both admit, she knows what I'm about to say, that if, if she is looking to me for ultimate satisfaction, our marriage is at great struggle. And, ever, and when it's happening to her, that she can never meet that. And so marriage, will, even in marriage, will never satisfy you. But it is an important institution to be a part of with grave and important images, as Jesus has said. But it will never be the ultimate satisfaction that is found at the well in the person of Jesus Christ. At the same time, also, um, what I think Jesus wants us to hear is, it, is that what are the areas in your life that maybe you need to gouge out, that you need to take drastic steps to fight around marriage and sexual impurity, and even in that, that you need to cut and deal with in your own life? And what might those be? They're serious, and they can lead to destruction. Think about those. Jesus wants you to flourish, and any of those things are robbing you from it. And then lastly, I want to... You remember the beatitude coming into this is that blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I would just offer as a pastor what I think we're headed as a church. 
and we're headed as Christians, is that it, it is a time now that we will probably be more and more persecuted to believe and to trust and to teach the sexual ethic of Jesus. And to believe that, uh, although I think the world is longing for it, in the Christian ethic, a man displayed his masculinity and chastity and self-sacrifice and deference to others and joyful refraining of sexual activity except for his wife. The Christian sexual ethic is limited to intercourse to a married man and his wife and is protective of children and gave them dignity. That's what they were seeing in there, and that's that. I think the world longs for it, and yet we're at a place where they will hate it. And it, it really is a time where I think to teach this will be the minority view. And to stand with it, we will have to be persecuted. But Jesus says that we're blessed for that. And so may we heed the seriousness of this, and may we heed the struggle and be willing to do whatever to do it. But may we also believe the satisfaction that comes. I'll quote, I'll close with a commentator here. Our society is throwing off the last vestiges of the Christian sexual ethic. And as it does so, we are once again outsiders and traitors who threaten to destabilize the whole system. As we insist that sex is to be limited to the marriage of one man and to one woman, we threaten the stability of a society hell-bent on permit, permitting and celebrating nearly everything except sex within marriage. As we insist that people flourish only within God's given sexual boundaries, we threaten the ideals of virtue and love that demand no greater commitment than consent. As we live our moral lives according to a higher ethic, we silently condemn those who reject the whisper within. Ruger says that the first Christians were men and women of great courage. Confessing Christian morality always requires the spirit of bravery. Indeed, confessing and practicing Christian morality today requires bravery. The willingness to obey God rather than men. Even in the face of persecution. May God continue to instill that spirit within us. Let's pray as we come to the table. God, would you help us as we come now to um, this table to take and eat? Would you, um, would you grant us um, would you grant us renewal and hopefulness and um, would you uh, help us to be strengthened by this meal. God, we, we, live, we live in a time in our own hearts that we're fearful, we're hurting, we've messed up, and we need your help us to flourish. And so would you give us the strength to do that? Would you give us the guidance and the help to do that? In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.